This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's art collections. Find us online at artuk.org to see stories and artworks from collections around the UK. And also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. I'm also on social media if you're interested at Farron Gibson. Tis the season for talk of witches and ghouls, though when you think about it, witches have become part of our year-long everyday pop culture. Harry Potter alone is a multi-billion pound franchise, endearing millions to the story of a little wizard boy and his witchy mates. Sabrina the Teenage Witch is another example. Whether you like the comic, the 90s television series, or the darker Netflix reboot, it's a popular franchise centered on an age-old concept. It seems to me that witches and witchcrafts are a universal phenomenon. There's probably not a society in the whole world which at some stage in its history has not believed in the power of witches. That's artist, art historian, and curator Deanna Petherbridge. Beings with special magical powers that can be used for malignant, destructive, or predictive, because they also predict what's going to happen, or even occasionally for, for, for healing purposes. Witches are the scapegoats in a world governed by superstition, and they can be blamed for natural disasters as well as wars, famines, premature deaths of human or livestock, or any kind of threatening event that destabilizes families, communities, or whole countries. They present um, in the Bible, for example, the story of the witch of Endor, who Saul employs to summons the spirit of the prophet Samuel in order to make a prophecy about a war with the Philistines. And in the great three monotheistic religions of the book, that is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, witches are believed to be humans who are in touch with the devil, with Satan. And it's from him who they obtain their special powers, particularly the ability to fly. There are also witches in many legends from the classical world, including hybrid creatures such as harpies, who are half-human, half-birds, who attack babies in the cradle, or witches like Circe, who can transform captured sailors into swine, or Medea, who could restore the dying king of Argos to youth with magical potions. So all these very rich traditions, in the West at least, are spurred on by the actual historical facts of the horrific European witch hunts and mass trials of the very late 16th and the 17th centuries. Now may I ask, are these always women? This is something that I hope we'll be able to define a little further on because witches are not always women. And even in the witch trials in Germany in the 17th century, as many children and men were killed as well as women. But there is a long tradition, which I hope I can um, describe to you, in which women are seen as the weaker and the corrupt sex. And so the images of witchcraft throughout the Western world, and I do make this distinction because witchcraft takes very many forms in other countries, the imagery is usually associated with women, either beautiful young women or terrifically frightening old hags. Lots of descriptions of witches make them seem hideous and nefarious, but if the Wizard of Oz is anything to go off of, there must also be a concept of good witches too, right? 
I think the notion of Wicca and benign witches is a really rather modern um, take on something which previously was a superstition which absolutely guided countries and even kings. So I think this notion of a, of a benign and healing witch, and there's always been a, a, a discussion in, in the West about healing propositions, but usually they, they were the men who were considered the healers, not only women. But this notion of the, the healing witch is, is really rather a 19th century take and, of course, a 20th and 21st century. There's now quite a big wicked society, I believe. As evidenced by the history of people, largely women, persecuted throughout history, witches are not just a fairy tale concept kept to children's stories. The idea of witchcraft has been a cause of mass panic at various points, and this combination of fear and interest created a fertile ground for artists. It's interesting to think why artists would depict witches, but they've always responded, of course, to stories for their subject matter. And even in the Greco-Roman world, the legends about witches were the sources of pottery decorations or, or, or the subject matter behind frescoes and sculptures. And these resurfaced, obviously, in the Italian Renaissance in the 15th century when they were picked up by artists like Andrea Mantegna or the printmaker Agostino Veneziano. And I must make this point that in depicting witchcraft and the the whole history of the art of witchcraft, the most important thing is to remember that actually it is through printmaking, significantly engravings, that witches and the information about witches has been distributed. And we mustn't forget that it was the invention of printing. The Gutenberg Bible was published in 1455. That became the spur to these dramatic images of witchcraft. People illustrated Bibles, they illustrated witchcraft texts, and also very first woodcuts, later on etchings and engravings with the cheap ways of circulating information. They were much cheaper, people could buy them, and they could pass so easily from from northern Europe to southern Europe. So in fact, the early history of witchcraft is very much about using printmaking for very popular notions and imagery, which could then be taken up by um, artists maybe in their paintings. Printmaking and text played an important role in shaping people's ideas around witches and witchcraft. The text informed the images, and printmaking made it possible for images to spread widely. Texts, which were written about demological texts, and they were written in Latin, by the way, set out all this absolutely spurious um, and crazy imagery of what witches were supposed to do. There's a very early text from the Formicarius, which was written in the 1430s by a German, um, a Swiss actually, Johannes Nieder. Um, there's another book written by Ulrich Mollet on witches and prophetesses in 1489. And all of these set out thinking about what witches would do and therefore inspired the artists who either illustrated those, uh, uh, those books or produced independent texts and also um, broadsheets, things that could just be sold or pinned up and be, be acquired for a few pennies. And these ideas were that witches were in league with the devil that by rubbing their bodies with a ghastly potion made in a cauldron, because don't forget they often represented sitting around a cauldron, and was made from the body parts of dead and, and dug up and stolen infants. When they rubbed their body, they could then fly 
and they could fly to witches' sabbaths where they had sex with the devil, and by the way, it was usually anal sex. They could indulge in wild dancing and monstrous perversions of Christian rites, including cannibalism. All these things were set up by the texts and then borrowed by the um, the artists. Where did the texts get their ideas from? The most pernicious of the text was, in fact, the Malias Maleficarum, called the Hammer of the Witches, which was written in 1486 by two Dominican friars, Springer and Kramer. And um, this was never illustrated. And by the way, it wasn't even translated into other languages. It was always maintained in Latin. It was used by the people who actually later tried witches, and it propagated an absolutely madly misogynist view that witches were mainly female. This is definitely said in 1486. And the reason for it is because women stupid, ignorant, they're naturally lewd, they're easily seduced. And of all these women, old women beyond the age of childbearing are the most jealous, the cruel and the malevolent of all. So these texts very much affected the kinds of information that would be drawn. One of the artists who took ideas from these texts and applied them to his works was Albert Dürer. His engraving produced in 1500 of a witch riding a goat is one of his most famous works on this subject. It can be found in the British Museum collection. She's shown as an absolutely hideous, shouting old crone. She's completely nude. She has thin, elongated breasts. She holds a besom or a broomstick between her legs. And she's sitting on a a very fierce goat. And, of course, Satan was very often depicted both in descriptions and in visual um, information as a goat. And there are a number of curious putty underneath this figure. It's it's very small and it was very, very influential. And in the top left-hand corner of this tiny little print are hailstones because, of course, one of the terrible things that witches could do is they could bring down storms. They could destroy property. They could wreck ships, which, of course, we also know from um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare, by the way, mentions witchcraft in practically every single one of his plays. Maybe going back a bit to the iconography, I'd like to unpack a bit. We think of witches in a pointy hat, riding a broom, boils on their face, I guess, and these sorts of things. Can you point to where some of that comes from? You cited the broom just now, for example, with the Durer work. Dürer, in a sense, and his, particularly his principal pupil, who was called Hans Baldung Green, a German, his dates are 1484 to 1545, really established this kind of iconography. Dürer, by the way, probably knew about the Malias Maleficarum because his uncle in Nuremberg had, had, had produced a, um, an edition, of course, also in um, um, Latin of this work, and Dürer did know some Latin. Um, he and Hans Baldung Green were very busy producing drawings and prints of witchcraft, which is obviously of, of real importance to them in their lives, but they're also rather amusing. They are simultaneously curious, amusing, witty, horrible, all at the same time. Hans Balden Green, for example, has done a very famous woodcut, a coloured woodcut. It's been reproduced in a number of different colours of the witch's Sabbath. He produced it in 1510. And it shows um, witches, again, riding backwards on a devil, holding a stick or a besom, holding down at the bottom 
are two witches, young witches, by the way, not only old witches, who are sitting around cauldrons. Smoke is coming out of the cauldrons. Um, a terrible old witch, again, this haggard witch with very, very long breasts and very, very hard nipples to make it quite clear that these are witches who are beyond childbearing. So they are jealous and monstrous creatures. She's holding up something or other right up to the genitals of the flying goat in the sky. And there are sausages. So they're often very rude. He, he loves rude imagery, Bolden Green. There are sausages being cooked. And there are all sorts of rude remarks about the relationship of phallic objects and witches and so on. So I think these early examples, the early 16th century examples, the the iconography is amplified by the artist, but it does come out of the text. Italians later um, um, in the century, like Alciati, uh, Italians who created books about of references, also described that witches were green, very often with envy, that they were pale, that they were hideous. The, this notion of the description of a hideous old witch actually even goes um, all the way back to classical times. So there is a long description of the ugliness of witches, and there's obviously a correlation between ugliness and evil. As witch trials became prevalent in the 16th century, ideas around witchcraft took a more serious turn that is later reflected in art. For example, there's a terrible witch trial in Trier in 1581-93 in Protestant Germany. There are the North Berwick witch trials in Scotland um, in the 1590s. And these were surrounding witches who were supposed to have um, tried to drown King James the Sixth of Scotland. He later, of course, became James I of England, um, and he wrote a book on um, demonology in 1597. And these were these were really bad trials in which a lot of people were put, put to death. And then the Basque witch trials at Logroño in um, northern Spain in 1609. These were conducted by the Spanish Inquisition by a particular judge, a French judge, Pierre Delon. And he actually published a book about them called On the Inconstancy of witches in 1613 and that book was illustrated so once again this is a moment now where there's a sort of change witchcraft is actually happening trials are actually happening broadsheets are coming up about people being actually tried and the imagery therefore that is coming out becomes much more complex and in, in a curious way much nastier than the earlier slightly jokey and rather classical works um, of the beginning of the 16th century. Some of the most significant paintings on the subject of witches coincide with this period of witch mania and can be found in UK collections. Let's take a look at the 1646 painting, Witches at Their Incantations by Salvatore Rosa, found in the National Gallery collection. This is a very large oil painting. It's dark, it's mysterious, it's usually on display. It's very seldom taken off display in the National Gallery in London, so you can go and see it. And this is done absolutely at the peak of witch mania. Yes, I think you could call it that. <laughs> Salvatore Rosa was a wild, mad, romantic or proto-romantic um, um, Italian artist who later lived in Florence and in Rome. 
Uh, he was also a poet, a playwright. He also knew all the influential people of the time. And a lot of them at this time were as interested in witchcraft and the, the ideas about it as they were in other 17th century matters. So he he's really done his homework in this work in the dark, because it's quite difficult to see. It's very, very black and very, very gloomy. But it's set out, and it's a very long picture too. Um, and you can see this very curious fat woman actually sitting right in the front, completely nude, with mad hair falling over her face. Um, she has a bone um, of somebody. She's been gnawing at it, no doubt, the bone of somebody she's ill because witches are so horrible they can even dig up bodies and eat them. She's stirring a cauldron, and all around her um, are lots of other descriptions of what's going on. For example, there is a corpse hanging just behind her, and somebody's clipping its toenails. Absolutely disgusting because the toenails would be used for magic. Um there are all sorts of monsters who've come into the place. There's a skeleton hand for some person is um, writing with somebody else's skeleton hand. Um, there are old half-naked hags pointing towards cadavers. Um, there's a very weird knight in armor um, setting fire to a document. It's it's full of really dramatic things, and curious enough, it's not the most dramatic of Salvatore Rose's. He did a whole series of witchcraft paintings. None of the others are here in this country, but of course there are a lot of prints, and those prints could circulate and people could look at them. And again, it shows this pan-European importance of the subject matter, because Salvatore Rose's use of this naked woman sitting in front is actually borrowed from a prince of a Netherlandish artist called Jacques de Gein, who had made a very famous print called Preparation for the Witches' Sabbath in 1610, which has established all these facts of these kinds of figures sitting in the front of um, dead creatures buried around them, of witches flying off into the smoke, either on broomsticks or on the back of terrible demons going off to participate in black masses with the devil. Next, let's discuss a painting in the Victorian Albert collection called Witch's Sabbath by Flemish artist Franz Franken the Younger. This painting picks up on another important element of the loose morals of witches. It shows women as sort of whores dressed up because witches are so immoral that they're also sexually immoral. There are scenes at the back of destruction, of places being set afire. There are signs of people going up chimneys because they fly up chimneys to get out, to go off to the Sabbath. There are naked creatures sitting around great cauldrons. There's sort of monsters in the room in a mysterious place that's part open outside, partly inside, mysterious places. You couldn't really ever see them. And in the front are circles with skulls and all the things that would be used to make magic incantations. So I think 17th century um, images are more dramatic, both as prints or as paintings. But they can also be really rather funny. There's some terribly mad, witty prints um, done by a Netherlandish printmaker, such as somebody called Jan van der Velde II. 
and he's done an etching in 1626 called the Sorceress, and it's absolutely ridiculous. It shows the uh, sorceress, a woman bending over, and a whole lot of demons running around. It's about pipe smoking. So witches have become associated now with one of the social evils of the time, which was smoking. And there's even a, a sort of devil creature in this image who's got a pipe sticking out of his bottom. So I think witchcraft sometimes is just a factor for people to enjoy themselves, to be lewd, to be rude. Other times it is so much more dramatic when I think when it's referring to actual events. In the astrology episode, we discussed the impact of the Age of Enlightenment on people's belief in magic and the occult. The effect was similar with witchcraft. As society moved towards ideas that could be grounded in reason, there was a decline in superstitious beliefs. This is reflected in the depiction of witches in art, and we can take a series by Spanish painter Francisco Goya as an example. In his great series, The Prince Called Los Caprichos of 1799, an awful lot of them are actually about witches. Most of them, the majority of the images are actually about witches, and here he's using witches as a symbol in a way, a metaphor for corruption and dissolution, particularly um, of clerics. Don't forget he was he was passionately anti-clerical as well as being anti-government. Now, Goya had painted a series of witch paintings. He was absolutely obsessed with witches, but he was also a man who associated with intellectuals, with political dissidents, with all the things of an enlightened Spain. But he was also, like everybody else, still fascinated with the past that hadn't been completely put to bed. For example, he painted a whole series of witch paintings for the Duke and Duchess of Osuna in 1799 on their walls. And of course, much later on, in the 1820s, as late as that, he decorated the walls of his villa, the so-called Quinta del Sordo, outside Madrid, with the, the amazing black paintings, which can still be seen now in the Prado. So Goya is using witchcraft in all sorts of other ways as a metaphor for evil, um, as a metaphor also for sexuality. He's playing with the words, so word games, of course, as Goya always did. So when he makes a print of a flying witch, the notion of flight is also a word, which is something to do with, say, orgasm. When he reproduces the witches with cats or with terrible evil bats or any of the signs of witchcraft. He's also playing with a kind of verbal play with them. They're very often about women of the night and so on. He's, he's using witchcraft as a symbol of the kind of evil which is represented in the Spain because there's so much going on in Spain at the moment for him not to be able to freely talk um, about the corruption that was happening. Around the same time in Britain, Swiss-born painter Henry Fuseli was painting similar subjects, including fairies and witches, but his inspiration was slightly different. He was terribly associated with romantic subjects, so he had produced enormous paintings for the Shakespeare galleries. This was a time in, in Britain, at any rate, right at the beginning of the of the, the 19th century and the end of the 18th century, when the subject matter, important subject matter, was the, the importance written by Shakespeare, um, as well as history painting artists with 
trying to produce grand paintings with grand subjects. So they would return to history, they would turn to religion, they would turn to great things, and Shakespeare became enormously important. So Fuseli is also fascinated with the notion of witchcraft, but mainly he's doing it as a sort of dramatic subject, which is something romantic, not real, not something that's happening, um, but evoking scenes, particularly out of dramas. Though the narrative around witchcraft shifts across the centuries in Europe, one thing that remained consistent was its connection to women. The subject was leveraged as a way of commenting on women's beauty, sexuality, and morality. In free Raphaelite artists, for example, in Britain, women now are depicted as beautiful witches. So witches are no longer these evil creatures, but there is a kind of notion that womankind altogether are in fact witches. They entrance and they corrupt helpless men. And this is written about in poetry of the time as much as in the paintings. In John William Waterhouse's painting titled The Magic Circle, we see a witch standing next to a smoking cauldron. Unlike the previous example, she's fully clothed, youthful, and relatively good looking. She holds a wand in her hand as she draws a protective circle around herself. Inside the circle are beautiful flowers, and outside are frogs and ravens, both of which are associated with witchcraft. In a painting by another Pre-Raphaelite artist, Frederick Sandis, we see a more subtle allusion to witches. There is a marvelous painter by Sands called Vivian, dated 1863, which is in fact in Manchester Art Gallery. Vivian is again a kind of witch, an enticing woman, based, in fact, on Sand's mistress, who comes from some exotic place, so she's always shown with exotic black hair, um, with her large chin, for some own reason she's terribly pre-Revelite. And Sands has also done a wonderful painting of Medea, 1866, which is in Birmingham Museum and Art Galleries. And here again, he's meticulously researched it, but he's showing... Medea as a beautiful woman who entraps men, who can create, who can kill her own children, who is a witch, but at the same time terribly sexual. And they're all sorts of, they're copulating toads, for example. She's, she's about to mix some terrible potion. She's pouring something out of her hand. Um, she's looking up in some curious, agonized, but sexual way at the audience. It's full of textures. It's full of information. It's full of jewelry. She's very large in the frame. It's this pre-Raphaelite notion that women themselves are entirely dangerous. These ideas evolve into sexist perceptions of women that were increasingly reflected in art and society. By the time we get to the symbolist movement, which really starts in the mid-19th century and goes on to the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, there is a really nasty and sexual notion of women as the carriers and effectors of venereal disease, of women as hysterics, of women as hypocrites, of women as manipulative liars, 
women who deny male controls are wild creatures and they need to know their place. And if we look, um, and these are mainly prints, if we look at some of the absolutely horrific prints um, from um, symbolist artists just about the turn of the century, for example, a, a German artist who makes me shudder and I laugh about him in equal measure called Franz, Franz von Stuck. His dates are 1863-1928. And he does all these intense paintings and terrible prints of women as sin. His subject matter is sinfulness. And it's always showing a nude woman, usually with a snake, a very phallic snake, uh, sort of between her legs um, and um, creeping around her. He's associated um, with an artist called Otto Greiner, um, also a symbolist German artist, who does all sorts of very sexually wild females learning to be witches in schools. We have Odilon Redon, for example. He's very dark drawings and prints, again, of witches, of women, as sinful. And we have the most horrific thing of all. We have an artist like Felician Rops, who, in fact, is a Belgian artist. His dates are 1833-1898, who's deeply engaged with erotic and satanic themes. And one of his best known and most terrible prints is in fact called More Syphilitica, Syphilis of the Death, and it's shown as an absolutely emaciated female prostitute. So witches now are the female sex. And of course, this is something which so many surrealist artists picked up on, and of course, so many contemporary artists to this day, particularly women artists, who have found these attitudes so very distasteful. Artists like the photographer Cindy Sherman, Anna Maria Pacheco in England, or Paula Rego, who's done a lot to do with witchcrafts, with a lot of social commentaries in her drawings, her prints, and her paintings are responding in a way to which being taken over as bitch. One of the last people to be convicted under the Witchcraft Act in the United Kingdom was Helen Duncan in 1944. She falsely purported herself to be a medium and was sentenced to nine months in prison under this 1735 law. There is now a bronze bust of her likeness in the Sterling Smith Art Gallery and Museum. Over the last century, witches and witchcraft have taken on new connotations, with the subject invoked as a recognizable way to engage with a range of issues. Let's face it, this is very much something that we hear in politics today, where we know that in some countries, the presidents can refer to witchcraft against themselves when actually they perhaps are conducting a witch hunt against other people. So I think witch is an absolutely laden symbol, so full of meaning and it can be appropriated and it can be used in so many different ways. So when we talk about the painting or the the, the imagery of witchcraft over the ages, it changes absolutely radically. That's it for today's episode on witches. As always, you can head over to the Art UK website where you'll find images from our discussion today and a few others that are related. If you enjoyed this episode, you may also be interested in our episode on astrology and also on erotic art. 
As always, thank you for taking the time to join us today and please tune in again next time.